Our scripture reading this morning is going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. That's going to be on page 553 if you're using one of the Bibles back there. That's right after Proverbs. So if you can find Proverbs, just go right after it. We're just going to be reading the first couple verses. Ecclesiastes 1, it says... The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is the word of God. Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Before the evil days come, and the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it, all is vanity. Would you like to pull the screen down? Someone is. Okay. Well, that video sobers all of us, I hope. This is a huge task that lies before us, and it's sobering, and yet it's exciting. Is life worth living? Does life really have meaning? Can a believer find true pleasure? from this world. Well, we hope to give biblical answers to those very questions and others through our exposition of this book of Ecclesiastes. And I am privileged this morning to introduce this series of sermons, which we pray and trust by the Lord's blessing will be transformational transformational for some of us as individuals and for the life of the whole church corporately. In the case of the unbelieving and unsaved, this series could literally be catalytic for your conversion because the Holy Spirit might show you that even though you were made for bigger things like God Himself, you are still desperately and perseveringly and doggedly seeking to find meaning and significance and satisfaction in all the wrong places. And you are repeatedly coming up empty. You're looking for it in success, popularity, achievement, influence, wealth, knowledge, pleasure, appearance, athletic skill, sex, drugs, alcohol, and a host of other things. And maybe, just maybe, by the grace of God, you will finally obtain the courage and the honesty 
to admit to yourself and to the Lord that not just the pursuit of these pleasures, these false gods, but even the attainment of them to some degree have left you void and hollow and unsatisfied and discouraged. And just maybe you will find yourself saying with the preacher, vanity, 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 all is vanity. Or in the translation of the NIV, meaningless, 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 everything is meaningless. Or as the Holman Christian Standard Bible puts it, absolute futility, absolute futility. Everything is absolutely futile. And perhaps by that grace, you will flee by faith to God through the Lord Jesus Christ and find forgiveness of your sins and real satisfaction. And in the case of those of us who are believers and have been saved, but still have an adequate, haven't adequately faced the reality and the emptiness of living in a fallen world under the curse of judgment and God, for those of us who still haven't quite figured out why so many things go badly for us as well as for the wicked, maybe, just maybe, the Lord will help us to make significant progress in looking less and less in all of the wrong places for meaning, fulfillment, and satisfaction. And we will turn by His grace, perhaps, more and more with increasing intensity to the one and the only one who can fill us with lasting pleasure, even our gracious, glorious, soul-satisfying God, the fountain of living water, our beloved of whom we heard last Sunday morning. Well, maybe the Lord will graciously bless us in these ways. Let's all pray together that He will, and that this series of sermons will in fact change us individually and corporately as a church. Change the unsaved and the saved. Change the unbelieving and the believing. Change the lost and the found. Well, let's talk just a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes. It is, I hope you know, one of the five wisdom books of the Old Testament. Can you name them? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the one we learned from last Lord's Day morning, the Song of Solomon. Ecclesiastes was almost certainly written by Solomon, though there is some debate even among godly conservative scholars. His name is not actually used, but he seems clearly to be the only one who would fit all of the descriptions in terms of wisdom and prosperity and fame. But at any rate, the author calls himself Kohelet. And Kohelet is a word that means a person who calls together an assembly, such as we have here this morning, with the purpose of addressing that assembly and giving them wisdom and knowledge. So whether he be a preacher or a teacher or a pundit or, as some have suggested, a professor, he is one who has called people together. And so it's quite natural to call him the preacher or the teacher. But the book of Ecclesiastes is, by anyone, by anyone's definition, a unique, bold, brutally honest, 
penetrating, unclassical dealing with troublesome questions. Dealing primarily with reality and helping us make sense out of the twisted, inside out, upside down, jacked up world in which we live. The preacher leaves us with disturbing observations. His sermon is, if I may use a sort of technical word, enigmatic. That simply means hard to understand, mysterious, difficult. He leaves us with assertions that trouble us and don't completely satisfy us because they seem to be somewhat ambiguous and he doesn't feel obligated at all to solve the ambiguity. It's really a tough book. It is, in fact, maybe one of the hardest books to understand in the whole Bible. Does that surprise you? Well, then you just need to read uh, commentaries on this book and see the honesty of those authors when they say, this is the most difficult book that I've ever studied. So I hope that in a certain sense we're all humbled by that and even with our vague familiarity with it we feel predisposed to say God please, please give us light please give us knowledge please give us understanding please give us insight please help us to understand what you really want for us to understand so that it will change our lives we should pray that together and I'm going to ask that you consider reading through the book of Ecclesiastes every week until this series is over. It's really not that very hard. Yesterday I went through the entirety book and it took me only 36 minutes. If you read two chapters tomorrow and two chapters on Tuesday and two chapters on Wednesday and so forth, you will be through the book of Ecclesiastes by the end of Saturday. And then we'll come and learn. And if you would do that every week, this book in fact, by the blessing of God, may be life transforming for you. So it's a tough book. And because it's a tough book, it's a neglected book. And because it's tough and neglected, it is frequently misunderstood. It has become the subject of many erroneous interpretations, weird interpretations, strange interpretations, which take away the value of the book for us. Some believe that it was written by a pessimist or that Solomon himself or the preacher, whomever he may have been, came under the power of pessimism or that it was written by a skeptic or that it was written, this is surprising, even by a hedonist, someone who's given his whole life over for pleasure because there are a number of references to pleasure. One of the most famous of all is, so then, let us eat, drink, and be merry. And some believe it was written by an agnostic or even an atheist. And some believe that Solomon himself fell under the power of skepticism and doubt. And I want to tell you right now at the front of this series, all of those theories are wrong. But their desperate attempts to somehow resolve the problem, how could Solomon, if in fact he was the author, How could this preacher say some of the things he said? They seem so contradictory, even within the the sermon itself, let alone the rest of the Bible. Maybe I'll just show you a couple of them so you can feel this. This is what makes it difficult. We're in chapter 1, but would you just go for a second to chapter 2 and notice with me verses 14 through 17. 2, 14 through 17. The wise person has eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same event happens to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. What's vanity? Becoming wise. For of the wise as of the fool there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. So I hated my life. 
because what is done under the sun was grievous to me, for all is vanity and striving after wind. Notice chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts. Really? And yet, I promise you that when we understand what he meant, he's speaking the truth. This is not the confession of a skeptic or an agnostic. Man has no advantage over the beast. They all have the same breath. Verse 20, all go to one place. All are from the dust, and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes down, or spirit of the man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Notice chapter 6 and verse 8. Just just a few more examples. Better is the end of a thing. Excuse me, I was reading chapter 7. Chapter 6 and verse 8. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Sounds like it's just as good to be foolish as it is to be wise. Chapter 7, verses 15 and 16. In my vain life I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. That's sad, isn't it? And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. That's sad. That doesn't seem right. But it's true. This is not the confession of a skeptic. This is the confession of a realist. Look at verse 16. What do you think of this advice? Be not overly righteous. None of your pastors have had to come to any of you and say, Brother, I just believe that you're too righteous. It sounds wrong, doesn't it? Don't be overly wicked, implying that it's okay to be a little wicked, but don't be overly wicked. Is that what he meant? Surely not. Look at chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. There is vanity that takes place on the earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. Really? The righteous people experience what wicked people deserve? And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. Really? I said that this also is vanity. Chapter 10, verse 19 Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Have you ever heard us preach that text here? Money answers everything? And finally, chapter 11 and verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. Walk in the ways of your heart. How many of you parents have said to your children, don't follow your heart? Of course you have. And in Numbers chapter 15 and verse 39, we read these words. God says through Moses, to Moses, make tassels for your garments to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord, to do them not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. Solomon, are you contradicting God? Now, I've only given you a few samples. And if you aren't the least bit humbled by that, as I have been, rather profoundly 
in preparation for this sermon and next Lord's Day sermon, then I would suggest you read the book of Ecclesiastes more carefully. It is difficult. It is perplexing. It is confusing in some regards. And I hope not a one of you is willing to say, oh, I got the book of Ecclesiastes figured out. All you have to do is get this thing about under the sun. And once you see that this is all someone's reasoning who is reasoning from the perspective of under the sun instead of above the sun, you'll get it and it'll all come together. I'm going to show you in a few minutes that is not probably nor primarily what Solomon or the preacher meant when he said under the sun. So this is a very unique book. It's it's wisdom literature to be sure, but it's not classical wisdom. Read the book of Proverbs and you will see over and over and over, if you live this way and do these things, you will succeed. If you live this way and do these things, you will fail. The righteous will be blessed. The unrighteous will be cursed. Generally, that is the message. And the preacher comes along and says, no, that's not, that's true, but that's not all the truth. The righteous will experience vanity and meaninglessness. So we approach it with that sense of reality and that sense of humility. Uh, One commentator put it like this. The book of Proverbs is a lot about how to become very successful And the book of Ecclesiastes is written to someone who got it. One wanted it, and the other got it. Well, what about the structure? Well, I can comment on that ever so briefly. It's divided into three parts, like most books are. There is an introduction, or what we could call a prologue. It's in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. And then starting with verse 12, and God willing, next week we'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And then in our third study, we'll begin with verse 12 of chapter 1, starting, uh, excuse me, uh, yes, verse 12 of chapter 1, and then goes all the way through chapter 12, verse 8. That's the body of the letter. And then when we come to chapter 12, verse 9, and we go to the end of the chapter through verse 14, we have the conclusion or the epilogue. And you notice, as Jason read for us this morning, especially in verse 2, that the book begins the way it ends. Vanity of vanities. You know, we sometimes use the expression creme, creme de la creme, the cream of the cream. If you could take vanities and put them all together and then pull out of that, the, the, that which epitomizes more than anything else, vanity That's what Solomon is saying. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And then when we come over to chapter 12, just please notice. It says in verse 8, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. So the book concludes almost the way it begins almost being the key word. And one of the unique things about this is that all the wisdom literature believes in and affirms and emphasizes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just that in this book, the preacher makes us desperate for where we can get some wisdom before he tells us that it's rooted in the fear of the Lord. He waits until the end of his sermon. So this is a unique book of wisdom given to us by God for our good. Now, just a a brief word about some key words and some key phrases, and then I'm going to give you um, the, the, the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, and we'll be through. The key words, of course, and you know this just from a cursory reading, are, first of all, the word vanity. comes from a Hebrew word, heveel, 
It literally means vapor. But it has come to connote and was designed to connote to connote something that is empty, hollow, shallow, brief, passing, ethereal, unsatisfying, and even absurd. In fact, that's one of the problems with translating that Hebrew word with the word vanity in its 30 or 29 times, or 38 times. 38 times this word is used. And I can assure you that the context requires the meaning to be somewhat nuanced from one context to another. So that's one of the problems in translating a Hebrew word with just one English equivalent. But generally speaking, this is the key word of the, of the sermon, vanity, or as the NIV translates it, meaninglessness, or absolute futility. That's a very key word, and I want you to be watching for it on your own as you read and as you listen to these sermons. And then, of course, another one would be under the sun. We didn't read under the sun today, but you don't have to get very far into the sermon before you read it. And this expression, under the sun, is used 29 times. And I'm just going to suggest to you right now, and then defend it in a moment, that under the sun primarily refers to a realm. A realm. It obviously refers to the earthly realm, to this earth, this place, this world. It's used, as I said, 29 times. The word God is used 44 times. The word heart is used 40 times. And the expression chasing the wind is used approximately six times. And that we find already in chapter 1. Even a child, if they were given an assignment by mom and dad to go chase the wind, would come back very quickly and say, Daddy, you can't catch the wind. No, son, just go outside and feel which direction it's coming from. And if it's coming from your left, then you know it's going from left to right. So run like crazy to the right and see if you can catch it. And he might be foolish enough to just try that one time, but he's still going to come back and say, Dad, that's impossible. You can't catch the wind. It's more feasible, as one preacher said, for a dog to chase his own tail than for a human being to chase the wind. And the preacher is going to tell us that, that we by nature are addicted to the futile, futile pursuit of chasing the wind. And no matter how many times we realize that we can't catch it, we keep chasing the wind. So those are some of the things we're going to look for. Now, here's what I want to do this morning in this sermon and the rest of it. And I really don't think it's going to take me long. I want to help us understand how we should approach the book of Ecclesiastes. I want to give you a lens through which it should be seen. I want to give you, to use another technical term, I think I've only used one so far, a hermeneutic. That is a principle of interpretation. That's what it means. Hermeneutics is the science of biblical interpretation. How we approach a text, given the kind of literature it is, given its context, is very critical. How we approach the book of Ecclesiastes is critical. I've already told you about people who approach it completely in a wrong way. They actually attribute a kind of foolishness to Solomon, the wisest man in the world, if indeed he's the one who wrote it. And misapply it. Because it's been approached wrongly. I want us to approach it rightly. And here's what I want to say about a proper approach and a proper hermeneutic, a proper lens through which we should see this message. The preacher, now listen to me carefully because I'm going to say something to you that will probably surprise you. The preacher is not primarily showing us the worldview of a skeptic or a pessimist or an agnostic, or an atheist. I'm going to say it again, then I'm going to ask you a question. I want you to be honest with yourself. 
the preacher is not primarily showing us the worldview of a skeptic or a pessimist or an agnostic or an atheist, even though skeptics and agnostics and pessimists and atheists come up with the same conclusions, that is not what the preacher is doing. Let me put it differently. He is not primarily showing us what the world looks like from the perspective of a secularist, a person who doesn't have the Word of God to govern his thinking. He just uses his rational skills. The preacher is not primarily showing us what the world looks like from the perspective of a secularist, though many secularists come to the same conclusions that Solomon came to. Now, here's where I want you to be honest. I won't ask for an actual raising of hands, but um, imagine raising your hand if you were so required in answering this question. How many of you came in here today with the general understanding that when uh, we hear the preacher talking here, he has himself become a skeptic or an agnostic or a pessimist, and that's how a skeptic looks at the world, and we just need to understand that that's how, so that we can go to the skeptic and say, look, look, you're looking at this thing the whole wrong way. Or, let me just raise the stakes a little bit and make this assertion and ask you another question, nor is the preacher using the expression, quote, under the sun, I've already hinted at this, to mean a fallen human viewpoint. That's the view that I have long held. I don't hold that view anymore. Under the sun, which I said is used 29 times, primarily refers, as I've already hinted, to a sphere wherein, listen to me, vanity and meaninglessness prevail. That's what he's talking about. He's not talking about a particular worldview. He's talking about a reality. Vanity and meaninglessness and futility prevail in the sphere under the sun. He wants us to understand that. He wants us to understand that meaninglessness, now listen to this because this is going to surprise you just a little bit as well, even as I have been surprised as I've wrestled with this text and read and studied, meaninglessness is the experience, it is the fate, futility, and vanity is the experience and the fate, listen to me, of the believer as well as the unbeliever. if you understand the meaning of vanity and meaninglessness and futility. Because this book goes on to explain the kinds of pursuits that always end up with frustration and disappointment. And when we think about, for example, finding satisfaction in wealth. What Christian here hasn't at least struggled with that? If not that, then let me put it this way. Finding satisfaction in the accumulation of more things. If I could just get that, I I believe. I'm not going to worship it, God, because you're supreme. But if I could just have that, I really believe I would be happier. I believe I would feel a kind of satisfaction in my soul that I haven't felt in a long time. And I'll always give you thanks for it. And I'll try to steward it well. I won't make it an idol. And then you get it. What Christian here this morning would not be honest enough to say, you know what, when I got it, (laughs) it wasn't really satisfying. You know what, it actually became sort of meaningless. It was a vain pursuit for me. Oh, then you're saying a Christian lives in a world where the principle of vanity and meaninglessness and futility prevails for him as well. Yes. What Christian has not gone through perplexing providences that have devastated you? You have lost everything suddenly or almost everything. 
or you've lost a dear one, how many of us as Christians are exempt from dying from cancer while we're young? Feeding your children good food and good drink and teaching them to be healthy and at a young, robust age, strangely, in this world, listen to me, that's a key phrase, in this world, under the sun, they get cancer and they die young. Futility, meaninglessness, vanity. Dear people, I'm going to say this several times. Quit thinking that this book is just for the world and that Christians are exempt from vanity and meaninglessness. The truth of the matter is that in a sense we're less exempt from it because we have a better understanding and we have deeper aspirations. And in some cases we come under the vanity of this world because of persecution and because the world hates us. And we study and we learn and we gain knowledge And the knowledge that we gain, Solomon is going to tell us, somehow strangely ends up making us more sad. Because you know what? We have more wisdom. And the more we watch the news at night, the more depressed we are. Because we see what wickedness there is in this fallen, cursed world. As time goes on, we're going to demonstrate to you from this book over and over and over that all of God's creation, all human beings are subject to vanity and meaninglessness and the perplexities. See, this is where Solomon comes along in this book and he says, he raises questions. He goes further than most people dare to go. He asks questions and he makes assertions that, that really make us nervous. And they're uncomfortable. But deep, deep down, we're trying to answer the same questions. And he doesn't answer them all. In fact, one of the things he implies is that there is no answer. There is no answer to these perplexities. And if you live with the determination that you have to find an answer to all of your perplexities, you will live in perplexity. Because God is sovereign, and the ways and thoughts of God are so high that they're as high as the heavens are above the earth. And you're going to get up there, and you're going to understand the answers to those questions? The preacher says, no, no, no. God cannot be understood. And that's one of the great tenets of the Christian faith. God has humbled us enough to be able to say, God, I don't need to know everything. I just need to know that you're there and that you're God and that you're good and that you're sovereign and that you're wise and that you're in control and that you can do anything wrong. That's all I need to know, God. Listen to me. I'm saying to you that in properly understanding the book of Ecclesiastes, we need to embrace this fact that vanity and meaninglessness and futility are the lot of God's people as well as the lot of the world but in a different way, as I will make clear. So what is the problem? Why, why are there these perplexities and these futilities even in the life of a believer? The answer is really simple. It's because we live in a fallen world. It's because we live in a fallen world. It's because we live in a fallen world. It's because we live in a world that is under curse. It's because... We have died in our father, Adam. It's because the first Adam in whom we were did not listen wisely to the the attending threat. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. And when God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden, among other things, he says to Adam, Hey, guess what? Gardening's going to get pretty tough because I'm going to do something to the ground. But Adam became a Christian, I believe. I believe that when God covered him and his wife in skins of animals, innocent victims that had to die in order for his shame and guilt to be covered, that he became a true believer. And we will meet the real Adam and Eve someday. 
But you're saying that even as a believer, he had a hard time gardening now from this point forward? Oh, yes. And his wife had trouble delivering her children too because it was with intense pain, increased pain. What are you saying? That they, that they came under the curse? Yes. Yes. Is there anyone here today who isn't under the curse of this world which is under the judgment of God? This is a good time to turn quickly to Romans 8. I want to show you something in Romans 8 because this throws light on Ecclesiastes. I want you to notice with me verses 18 through 23 of Romans 8. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us Wow, we need to keep that perspective, don't we? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation, he's talking about this earth and the ground and trees and weather and water and storms and all everything that's, that we would call nature. The creation was subjected to futility. There's our word, meaninglessness. Not willingly, you know, God didn't say, hey, I'm going to give you a choice here. Uh, Would you like it or not? No. But because of him who subjected it, a sovereign God put this creation subject to futility that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons because we're getting older and we're dying and we're getting sick and we're succumbing to disease. Even we are waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, the revealing of the sons of God. Where has bondage come? Where has the curse spread? To the whole world and to all creation, including Christians. So don't be saying, oh, he's just talking about the worldly mindset. I don't have to deal with this meaninglessness and this vanity and this futility. Oh, yes, you do. If you're a human being, you do. Yeah, but I'm a believer. Do believers die? Have you ever heard of a Christian experiencing injustice? Do you think Christians are the only people who go through the court system and they always get a just verdict every time? Do you think injustice doesn't bring into its sweep the frustration of Christians who don't get justice? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless because we live in a world under curse, under the sun, meaninglessness and vanity prevail. So the way to sum it up is like this. We know you've heard us use these words several times and we're going to keep using them because they're very helpful. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration or consummation, whichever you like. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. That covers everything. God created. He created man uprightly, this book tells us, but man fell. And when man fell, he came into bondage. And guess what? Vanity and futility and meaninglessness came into this world which was disordered. But Jesus came to redeem this world. Yes, the cosmos. And he redeems the cosmos by sending his son to live and to die in the place of sinners so that they can be forgiven and justified. That's the gospel. The gospel, the good news is that all of us in this room can be forgiven of our sins by simply looking to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But they have to be paid for by someone, either us or a substitute. There's only one person who can do the substitution that God will accept. It's a sinless victim named Jesus Christ. And the good news is that the moment we turn from our sins and call upon His name and trust in Him alone, we give Him all of our sins, they're judged in Him, and He gives us His perfect righteousness, and we're saved forever. That's the good news. Redemption. So there's creation, fall, redemption, and then what? The Christian's hope. 
It's what Paul's talking about, Romans 8. We're waiting for the revealing of the sons of God because they're going to be set forth before the whole world which treated them wrongly. One day they'll be on the right hand of the Lamb of God, the Son of God. And he'll say, these are my people. You depart into iniquity or into everlasting punishment. These are mine. They inherit eternal life. And when that judgment takes place, there will be a holocaust like we could never imagine and the whole universe will experience a meltdown for cleansing. And then the new heavens and the new earth will be created wherein dwells righteousness and there will be no more injustice. No more perplexity. No more cancer. No more not getting the job that you better deserved than the other person who got it. No more meaninglessness. But that's our hope. That's not the present reality. And we have that hope because the Holy Spirit has given us faith and we believe the promises of the Word of God. So being Christians does not make us less subject to vanity or emptiness or the lack of satisfaction. We too live in a crazy, unjust, dangerous, sad, tragic, sorrowful, death-experiencing, upside-down world. And that's what this book is going to be about. And, and we're just going to, you know, we're going to be oppressed by it in a sense. But if you, if you just can't handle it, then go ahead and just keep jumping back to, to chapter 12 and verse 9 and, and see, and see the conclusion of the whole because we, we know how it's going to end. We know who is on the throne. We know who God is. We have experienced His love. He's going to help us. We have this crazy belief, and I speak facetiously, that somehow all things are going to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Man, how are you going to go through this, man? How are you doing it? You just seem to be so, you have so much peace. How do you How do you go up to your bedroom and find a seven-week-old baby dead? And yet you want to worship God and and say He never belonged to us at all, all things are well? How do you do that kind of stuff? Well, it's like this. I believe with all of my heart that seated at the right hand of God is my Savior and that His Father is working all things for the good of those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. You mean even the, the meaninglessness? Yeah. Because you see, he's over the meaninglessness. In fact, he ordained the meaninglessness. It's the penalty of the fall. Of course he's over it. He's sovereign over it all. So we as Christians who go through this meaningless world can find joy even in Ecclesiastes, we can rejoice with our spouse. We can eat good food and have good drink. We can enjoy the pleasures of this life, though they're very brief and though they're short. But we don't put our whole heart in it because we know there's a big one coming. The biggest one of all is coming. So we can go through this. So is the book all pessimistic? No. It's pessimistic for the unbeliever. But it isn't for the believer. So it's like God is saying to the whole world, and this is, this is the way I'm going to conclude. He's saying, look, this book is for two kinds of people. It's for unbelievers because I'm wanting them to, to face reality. You cannot find happiness in this world. You cannot. You're just going to find it one vain pursuit after another, after another, after another, after another. And I want you to come to the end of yourself. And I want you to, I want you to quit chasing the wind. And I want you to face the fact that you're coming up empty. You're coming up empty. Come on, you're coming up empty. If you weren't coming up empty, you wouldn't keep trying. Because you'd have it. But you don't have it. And God is saying to the worldling, to the unbeliever through this book, quit trying to find meaning apart from me. There is no meaning apart from me. There is no significance. There is no satisfaction. But what is he saying to us? He's saying, get real. Get real, folks. You live in a fallen world too. But your father is on the throne, and this ain't all there is. Another day is coming. 
And I just want to say to you young people and to you children, this is my, my whole pathetic word to you with pathos. Boys and girls, young people, please get real. Please face the fact that you're not going to find happiness in those things that I've mentioned. Wealth, education, success, athletic. Okay, go out for sports. Give it all you got. Be the best athlete you can be. Find pleasure in it. It's a gift from God. But don't make it the ultimate. Don't make it the thing that you're trying to fill the, fill the vacuum of your soul with. Because you can't fill the vacuum of your soul with sex or drugs or money or houses or friendship or influence or popularity or anything else. They're only temporary gifts. But if you make an idol out of them, it'll take you to hell. The book of Ecclesiastes is saying to you, children and young people, find your satisfaction in God. Fear the Lord. That is to love Him out of a deep sense of reverence and keep His commandments. Not as a legalist, but as someone who loves Him and wants to please Him. And you'll find fulfillment in life. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. So we all live under the sun, and we all have to deal with meaninglessness. But a Christian can deal with it in a way that a non-Christian can't because of God. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, thank you for this amazing book. Um, We pray that wherever we misunderstand it, you will correct us. We pray that what you intend it to mean and say to us and how you intend it to change our lives may be realized by us individually and corporately as a church. We thank you that you inspired the preacher to give us this sermon. Help us all to look to Jesus Christ alone as our Savior and to have you as our Father. We pray in his name. Amen.